First Timothy chapter five. If you're unfamiliar or, or, or not aware, uh, we go through books of the Bible together. We began together when I first got here going through Ephesians and then we made our way through Habakkuk and, and now for the last several months we've been making our way through First Timothy and the reason I preach through books of the Bible is because I believe that every single word of the word of God is profitable and is able to build us up in the faith and give us instruction oftentimes on very practical things as it relates to the gospel within our lives. So we've been preaching through 1 Timothy. We've been going through 1 Timothy. And now we've, we've entered into 1 Timothy chapter 5. We looked at verses 1 to 8 last week. And now we're picking up with verse 9 this week. And we'll be reading down to verse 16. So 1 Timothy chapter Five, beginning in verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it it may care for those who are truly widows. Would you pray with me? Father, When you call us into the body of Christ, you call us into your family. And Lord, in your providence, very often, we as individuals or as particular families are met with some dark providence, some affliction. We have some who are ill some who are losing their strength, their bodily strength. 
And when tragedy strikes, Father, we are often left in a state of disarray and confusion. Lord, You have given us the family of God. You have brought us into the church so that as a church, we might all care for one another and might all take upon ourselves the burdens of others. Father, we pray that You would give us the mind of Christ who took upon Himself the burden of the world so that He might rescue us, free us, bring us into Your everlasting kingdom. Let us not be a people who are so consumed with ourselves that we forget our brothers and sisters in need. Father, help us by Your Spirit to be a people who ministers to the afflicted among us. So we ask, Lord, that You would open up Your Word for us this morning and afflict our hearts if we have been living in unrighteousness and consumed with ourselves. Help us, Lord, to think as You think and to feel as You feel for those who are needy. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last hymn we sang is written by a man named Venantius Fortunatus, and it begins like this. See the destined day arise. See a willing sacrifice. Jesus, to redeem our loss, hangs upon the shameful cross. Jesus, to redeem our loss. This is a little phrase that really captures the essence of the Gospel of Christ. I've meditated on it this, this past week some. And as I've thought about it and meditated upon it, you know what I've found? I've found that the Gospel of Christ... The true Gospel of Christ is 10,000 times better than the American Gospel that saturates so many churches. 10,000 times. You know what the American Gospel is? You've probably heard me talk about it before. You've probably heard me denounce it before. And I will continue to denounce it again and again and again until its head is lopped off and it's nowhere to be found within the church of Christ. The American gospel is a poison. It is a poison that kills churches and it's a lie. It's the foundational message of what one writer, Michael Horton, calls a Christless Christianity. 
And it doesn't saturate liberal churches. It's not what is driving mainline Protestantism. It's subtle enough to be the very thing that's killing most conservative evangelical churches. The American Gospel affirms orthodox doctrines. The belief in Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, the belief that mankind are sinners in need of grace, although often sin is simply relegated to a, a mistake that we make, belief in angels, belief in eternal blessedness in heaven and eternal damnation in hell as judgment against sin. None of these doctrines are actually denied, at least for now. They are affirmed. But in practice, none of these beliefs are very relevant to our lives. In practice, Jesus is not our sovereign King. He is not our Lord. He is not the head of the church. Very often, we are the head of the church. In practice, we have these lives that are comfortable enough the way they are. Maybe we'd make some improvements here or there, but by and large, our lives are pretty comfortable. We have our jobs. We have our possessions. We have our families. We have our cars. We have our goals. We have our 401ks. We have our politics, or maybe our non-politics. We have our vacations. We have our different events that we, we like to go to. We have our friends. And very much, very often, the case is that our friends look and sound and believe just like us. And then, those things aren't necessarily all bad by themselves. It's not, it's not, it's not a sin to have a home. It's not sin to have things, to have friends. That's not, that's not the issue. But within this list of things that fill our lives, we've also then got Jesus as pretty much another line item. We've got our religious line item, and Jesus fits in right there. He's just one among many of the other things that we have to fill into our time slots. And what Jesus becomes to us really within that framework is, is nothing more at the end of the day than a life coach. Jesus is our co-pilot. I think, I think I've actually seen that on a bumper sticker before. Our co-pilot. Not our Lord, not our King. Jesus is there to essentially deal with our messy stuff, right? our, our sin and our, our evil hearts. And, and He's kind of there so that that will all be dealt with. But I mean, as far as determining our entire lives, no, that's too much. He's, he's kind of in this area over here. 
And maybe he gives some guidance to a couple of pointers there. He tells us maybe, maybe, maybe we need to reprioritize a couple of things. Maybe put possessions a little higher or a little lower. Put friends a little higher or a little lower. Right? He's just kind of a life coach. If you do this, life will be much better. So what ends up happening is that the central character in the entire story of creation and redemption, the very maker of history itself, becomes nothing more than a prop in our own place. That's basically the American gospel. Jesus, the addendum, to our lives. The gospel of my pretty, clean, closely shaven life now with Jesus as my, tif- my ticket to a great white American heaven later. A lot of people live with this kind of gospel. It's, it's very easy to have this kind of gospel. It's probably the hardest place in the world to be a Christian in America. Because we can really domesticate things. This kind of gospel is easy to live out. It's not risky It's not demanding of anything. It's just an addendum. I don't want anything to do with that gospel. And I don't want anything to do with that gospel because I know that gospel never satisfies. And I know that the true gospel is 10,000 times greater. Infinitely greater greater. The true gospel, the true gospel is that Jesus redeems our loss. You know what that means? Redeems our loss. That assumes that at one time we had something and then it was lost. What we had, we had in Adam. And it was not only dominion over all of creation, it was not only authority over every bird of the air or animal on the ground, it was not only the promise of fruitfulness and the access to enjoy anything and everything in creation, it was God. We had God the one who dwelt with us and among us. We had God who is the light of men, the life of creation, full of glory and infinitely valuable. And that's who we lost. That's who we lost. And when you were born and I was born and everyone else was Born, we were born without having God as our treasured possession. 
Ephesians says that we, apart from Christ, were without God in the world. Which means that we were all, every single one of us, all of us, born into poverty. That was, and it still is, the loss of the world. The Gospel, however, teaches us that God was unwilling to allow us to remain in that state of poverty. And so according to His wisdom and His plans, Christ left the bless the bliss and security of the heavenly presence of God to enter into our impoverished experience to become a servant among us, to dwell among us in bodily form, the Son of God among us, and to suffer a gruesome and bloody death on a cross so that through His death we might be brought back to God. And by giving us Himself and giving us communion with the living God, we were all made infinitely rich. He came to us, Jesus, in our helplessness, in our weakness, in our darkness, and He gave us the light and the treasure of Himself. That's the beauty of the Gospel. Jesus got real messy with us and made us infinitely rich in Him. Now what does this have to do with the passage that we're in, 1 Timothy? The answer is everything. Everything. You know what First Timothy is? All First Timothy is, is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to Timothy, and by extension to the Ephesian church, applying the beauty of this Gospel to the practical lives of all of the people within the church. That's all he's doing. He's taking the story of redemption and examining the very real things that are going on within the church and applying that Gospel to them. That's all he's doing. That's all 1 Timothy really is. Taking the truths of the Gospel and applying them to the real life in a local church. You see, Paul doesn't believe that the truths of the Gospel are unrelated to life now. The Gospel is not simply a message about what will happen when you die. It's a message that has consequences for your life now. It radically shatters it and then remakes it. Jesus says in Luke 14, 33, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has can't be my disciple. That sounds like it would have some real effects on our lives now. 
That sounds like it might affect the way I think, the way I feel, what I desire, even the future plans I might make for myself. The Gospel affects all of those things. What Paul teaches us in his letters is that the Gospel calls us into a life of making much of the Gospel and of Christ. Every aspect of our lives and every aspect of the church should have Gospel plastered all over it. My work, Gospel. My devotions, Gospel. My family, Gospel. My friends, Gospel. My relationships, Gospel. My relationship to the local church, Gospel. My decisions, Gospel. My money, Gospel. My feelings, Gospel. Everything about me, now that I am in Christ, has the express purpose of making much and giving a visible demonstration of the Gospel. And if some aspect in my life is not doing that, that's when I repent. I don't, I don't keep it the way things are. But repentance... Repentance is not only a turning away from sinful actions or thoughts, it's turning to God. And so if something in our life is not making much of Christ, we repent and we turn in the direction of doing that very thing. Chapter 1 and 4 of 1 Timothy Paul gives instructions about dealing with false teaching because they don't accurately communicate the truths of the Gospel, nor do they promote lives that are worthy of the Gospel. Lives that produce a picture of the Gospel. And chapter 1, you'll remember, ended on the sobering note of the excommunication, the removal from membership of Hymenaeus and Alexander. And the reason that Paul gave there was that they were blaspheming. They were distorting the Gospel and the character of God and they were not changing. In chapter 3, the qualifications of elders and deacons are based on their Christ-like character. Do these men who potentially are qualified to be elders or deacons, do these men make much of God and the Gospel in their lives and in their families? And where we are in chapter 5 is about how the truths of the Gospel apply to caring for widows. Many churches at that time had widows who had no means of supporting themselves. Many churches today have widows who have no means of supporting themselves. And so the question becomes, how do we care for widows in a way that illustrates the Gospel visibly? And that last part is key. In a way that illustrates the Gospel visibly. You can, care for way, you can care for widows in, in ways that don't illustrate the Gospel. You can do things in a very unwise way and actually cause a hindrance to the Gospel. 
And you can actually be the means that they might even abandon the faith. So how do you care for them in a way that illustrates the gospel visibly? But I don't want to stop short this morning with widows. I want to ask the broader question. How do we care for any in the church who are afflicted or helpless in any way in a way that demonstrates the gospel visibly? You see, the question of widows for Paul is just a specific example of members within the church who are afflicted in some way. For widows, obviously the affliction is the loss of a husband, the one who is providing for them, caring for them, loving them. But we also see from James, what we read earlier, that a pure gospel religion is to visit widows as well as orphans in their affliction. Orphans would have been just as helpless as many widows of that time. But even beyond widows... Think about as another example, a family where the husband is severely injured in something like a car wreck and becomes paralyzed, especially if the husband was the sole provider for the home, how does the church come alongside members in those situations and care for them in a way that pictures the gospel? I think this passage is helpful for us to think through these questions because we're able to see essentially how the Apostle Paul dealt with these issues, specifically as it related to the widows. And the way that he dealt with them was with wisdom, first seeking to care for their souls, that's primary, and then balancing that with the gospel imperative of caring for the weak while not overburdening the church. So here's the first thing that should be done in helping the afflicted in the church. Things we need to think through. And I'm specifically thinking about members within a local church. When you get get outside of the church, you're dealing with those who are afflicted, maybe widows or orphans or whatever the case may be, outside the church, some different things have to be considered at that point. Very similar principles, certainly, but some different things have to be considered. I'm thinking primarily this morning about the local church. The first thing that has to happen is that their character, the person who's afflicted, their character should be examined. Before the church rushes into caring for them, especially financially or anything like that, before the church makes any move, the person's character should be examined. Paul doesn't simply say, if there's a widow, give her whatever she asked for. Now he says that there should be an examination process. She should meet certain qualifications. It's just like if you were applying for a loan or some other kind of assistance today. You're not going to receive anything until you meet certain qualifications of that organization. It's the organization who determines whether or not they will assist. Well, in the early church, there was a formal process of caring for widows. 
They would be enrolled on a list so the church could keep up with them. But in order to be enrolled, they had to meet the qualifications. And the qualifications didn't just concern whether or not they had a legitimate need. The qualifications began first with an examination of their character. Were they known for being faithful in their family? Look at verse 9. Paul says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. Literally, a one-man Woman. It's the counterpart to the elders and deacons having to be a one-woman man. Was she faithful to her family, to her husband? Verse 10, he goes on, he says, and having a reputation for good works, and then he gives as an example of good works, if she has brought up children. This, this assumes that she had children and she wasn't known as being a neglectful mother, but was faithful in her calling as a mother. So very much like elders and deacons having to meet qualifications, and those qualifications really focusing on their family life, qualifications for widows who are seeking some kind of care or assistance within the church begins with their family life their reputation as a good family woman. The other thing is, do they and did they serve the church? Are they known for being faithful members and servants of God? Again, in verse 10, if she has shown hospitality is another Example, she has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. She has a reputation and she is known among the church as being someone who has given her life to the body of Christ. Another thing, is it evident that they are devoted to God. Not just by way of a profession of faith, but by outward evidences of godliness. Look at verse 5, just before. Paul says there, speaking of who a true qualified widow is, he says, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. This widow is known for being a woman of fierce, desperate prayer and devotion to God. If the church is having to decide who it's going to take care of among its membership, and especially with resources, this is the kind of character, Paul says, they must have. And if it's not there, it may be in the churches as well as the person's best interest to refuse them and to explore other options. So the refusal isn't necessarily for all times. right? And there may be other options that could be explored. 
That's what Paul commands to happen for the younger widows in verses 11 to 13. He says, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they ought not. There's two things going on here. First, Paul isn't saying that all younger widows everywhere exhibit this kind of behavior. The kind of behavior like learning to be idlers. He's addressing a present situation in the church where this is what the younger widows in Ephesus were consistently doing. It's a present situation. They are learning now to be idlers. This is what their life is consisting of right now. And they are learning to be gossips and busybodies. He says, don't enroll these younger widows because this is what is helping helping them with the church's uh, resources. uh, Excuse me. Helping them with the church's resources. This is what it's doing to them. It's making them into idlers. It's allowing them to be essentially freeloaders when there are other options for them. Second, the other thing that's going on is that some of the younger widows are abandoning the faith altogether. So during this time when a woman married a man, she would adopt whatever religion he had. This is part of the culture. And frankly, it's very often what happens even today. That's why you encourage believers to marry believers. But in this time in particular, when a woman married a man, she would adopt whatever religion he had. And so when Paul says that the desire for these younger widows to marry is bringing condemnation upon them for abandoning their former faith, it's not because they simply want to get married. He says in verse 14, you should get married. So there's something else going on here. The problem is that their desire to marry is requiring them to abandon the faith. Which means that they're interested in an unbeliever. They're pursuing a pagan. They're falling for someone who doesn't know Christ. They were, at the time, very much like missionary daters are today. You know what a missionary dater is? A missionary dater is someone who is under the assumption that they can start dating an unbeliever, and through that relationship, that unbeliever is going to become a Christian. They have strong desires, strong passions for them. They think this relationship is going to go somewhere and eventually in the providence of God, this person is going to become a believer. Well, that almost never happens. And I only say almost because there are rare occasions where it's not because of the missionary dating, but despite the missionary dating that someone becomes a believer. That's... Very similar to what was going on with these younger widows. They were pursuing 
unbelievers, desiring to marry them and abandoning the faith and straying after Satan. Paul says, for them, the church can't support them. And the church can't support them because it would be giving approval to the life that they are going down. So the principle is that there has to be an examination of the person's character before the church supports them. But even if someone's character is reputable and godly, the church should still explore other means of help. That's the second main principle. The church should explore other means of help. This may come from someone's immediate family. Paul says in verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows, who don't have family, who are left all alone. And this the same thing is essentially a restatement of verse 4 where he said there, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. So if a family is able to care for someone, the entire church doesn't need to take upon themselves that responsibility. And that's not because the church doesn't care about their situation. It's because there's other viable options that free up the resources of the church so that, as Paul said, they can care for those who really need the help and are in desperate situations. Just thinking beyond widows. Sometimes when people come to the church asking for assistance, it's not really immediate assistance that they need. Very often it's the case that they're, they're not in such a desperate situation that they're going to go home tonight with nothing and perhaps not even have a home. And they're going to have to sleep on the street. Sometimes that is the case. Sometimes that is the case. Very often, it's not. A lot of the times, it's not immediate assistance that someone needs. It's something like a long-term, sustainable job. It's work. It's something that's going to have a long-term effect in their lives. And the church is not going to serve that person best by simply giving them what they say they need. The church is going to serve that person best by using its connections and its resources to help find that person work. I mean, just think about all of the connections that would be here in this church with different jobs, Fruit of the Loom, Western, right, the university, manual labor, truck driving, whatever. There are connections even in our church, that a person who is desiring and seeking assistance often does not have themselves. And so the best way that a church can minister and serve that person is to use its own resources to look for a long-term solution for them. Now that requires a little bit more commitment. That's a little bit more relational. That's a little bit more investment. It's a lot easier 
and a lot quicker just to write a check to someone. It takes effort to help them find a job and maybe even to train them for a job. But in the long run, that's going to be a better ministry to them. And the church isn't going to be overburdened when it can explore other options. So it's going to be keeping with Paul's counsel for the church to explore other means of help first. Now finally, once someone's character is examined and other means of help are explored, it's the obligation, not an option, but the obligation of the church to care for the person who is afflicted in some way. Widow, orphan, whatever the case may be. Again, at the end of verse 16, Paul says, let the church not be burdened by by those who could be cared for in some other way. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This this text assumes that the church will want to care for its people. That the church will have a desire to care for its people. It assumes that we will not be self-centered, that our brothers and sisters who are in true need will not be forgotten. And it assumes this because that's what the Gospel should do to us. That's how the Gospel should affect our own hearts. It should transform us from the inside out so that we're no longer consumed with ourselves, but rather we are learning daily to die to our own selves and our own comforts. And the reason is because that's what Christ did for us. That's what Jesus does for us. We were in poverty. We were desperate. We were destitute. We had nothing in this world. It doesn't matter if you are a millionaire. If you don't have Christ, the only thing you possess is dirt. Because it will be fatal. We were hopeless, we were godless, we were lifeless, we were poor, pitiful, and blind. And Christ entered into our poverty to make us rich in the faith and heirs of His kingdom. Now that should move the heart. I am someone who has been poor before. And I had someone, Jesus, come into my life, wreck it, reorganize it, remake it, kill it, make it alive again. Shed His blood for me. So if we want to plaster the Gospel all over our lives and the life of the church, we're going to care for the afflicted. Just like that video that we watched earlier if we understand what Christianity is and what the Gospel is, we're going to care for the poor and about the poor, among us and outside. So here's just a few 
few ways that that could happen, in particular for widows. We, we certainly have widows among us. Not all are in financial need, but nevertheless, there are different ways that we as a church can care for widows, even among us. The first is financially. The first is financially. If there is a financial need for widows among us, then that is something to be explored and perhaps something that is going to be the most obvious out of all of them. That if a widow is in a desperate spot, if she has a reputation of being godly and blameless, and she's without family, we would need to be supporting her. And if that would require us to give more so that we could do that very thing, that's what the gospel calls us to do. To sacrifice our own comforts to support those among us. If some other member was in a desperate spot, the same would, would also apply. Again, tragedy happens. Tornadoes come and destroy everything. Right? So things can happen. People can get in car wrecks and become paralyzed. If these desperate situations arise, we ought to have hearts that are moved by the gospel to invest ourselves in them. And so give a picture of Christ and what He does for us. Another way to care for widows and those in need, but again, especially widows here, is spiritual care. Something as easy as praying for them. We can get a, a membership role. I'm not going to give you our current membership role because that's still a little messy. We've got to get that one all straightened out. But we can, we can have a list of our, our widows. And you can get that and you can take that home and you can pray for that. You can pray for those widows every single day. You can pray for them that they would constantly be reminded of the goodness of God that the church has not forgotten about them, that God has not forgotten about them, and that He would strengthen them in this affliction that they are in. So spiritually, you can, you can pray for them. But also relationally. Relationally. Visiting widows is also something very simple to do. You could make it a point every week, every other week, even something as once a month, just to simply give a widow a call, come over to her home, spend some time with her, ask her how she's doing, pray for her, read the Word with her, minister to her face to face. Something practical that can, can happen very easily. Writing cards. Going to the store, buying a card, writing a note putting some Scripture in there, encouraging the widow that we are caring for you, we are praying for you, and we love you. Something like that. Buying a card, writing it to them. Bringing a meal. Right? We've done that for several members within the church. A new baby comes along, or there's some illness that, that comes along where a good ministry to them is to bring them some food. Well, you can do that very same thing with widows. That would be a very easy ministry to start. Just people get together and say, we're going to care for our widows, just a few of us, or whoever wants to participate. We're going to find out who our widows are. We're going to see if they are open to us bringing them a 
meal. Spend some time with them or drop it off, whatever they desire, and minister to them in that way. That's caring for the body of Christ. And friends, we want to do that. We want to care for our widows, and we want to care for those who are afflicted among us, again, because that's what the gospel calls us to. You see the destined day arise, right? See willing sacrifice. Jesus to redeem our loss. We ourselves have come from a place of poverty. So if we have tasted the goodness of God in the Gospel, this overflows into our lives of service and care. Again, the rewards that come with that are not found in something like the American Gospel, which is self-consumed and self-serving. We serve a God who came and died and served us. He washed the feet of His disciples. And so that's our call, friends, to be a church who cares for the afflicted among us. Let's go to the Lord, ask Him to bless this Word to us, to affect our hearts and to care for those among us. Father, we... Sing Your praise continually because of Your wondrous works. Because of Your miracles and the power that You have demonstrated by Your outstretched arm in raising Christ from the dead for the salvation of our souls. To deliver us from an an oppression of sin. Lord, we pray that You would cause our hearts to be affected by Your Gospel so that we would begin to care for our widows, for the poor. We would get into our communities and love them with the Gospel of Christ. Father, give us these hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name.